This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Call me the photographer. <laughs> I'm Paul. And I'm Trish. Hi, I'm Evan. Oh, we'll oh, do that oh, one more I'm time. Sorry, Here I we go. On you, Evan. <laughs> Here we go. One more time. Hi, I'm Jesse. Call me the photographer. I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Evan. And I'm Trish. We're going to talk about The Efficiency Expert by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This is first serialized in, was it Argosy? I think it was Argosy. Uh, Argosy All Story Weekly. I have three of the four issues it was serialized in. All, which, all Story Weekly. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think it was Argosy All Story Weekly. It's both. Um, back then and today, you know, how magazines merge, um, mm-hmm. they start separately and then they come together and it was a weekly magazine. You get one, you, you got the whole installment of the entire novel in one month, which is pretty impressive. Instead of, you know, taking four months, you get the whole book in one month just by going to the newsstand every week. That's totally readable, right? Whereas if you wanted to read like a serialized novel now it would take well first of all the novel would be way longer <laughs> but it, it would take a lot longer to to get it all so i think that's part maybe part of the decline in novels is their infrequency uh not novels i mean it, magazines magazines i mean it's hard to read a serialized novel if it takes three months and and three issues to read it, i find it hard to uh, read comics that way you know coming out once a month I, yeah, I much prefer, I, yeah, I prefer trade. collections where I can read it all through. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're reading, if you're reading every Marvel, you know, uh, superhero comic, you, you you sort of see it all as a big part of a larger story. But if you're getting it, you know, if you're just reading, I don't know, X Men once a month, um, I, I remember in the summer they would put out um, multiple issues a month. Um, so. I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. Uh, this didn't see a republication until 1966, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, and I think, Trish, you said your father had a copy of a paperback? Uh, no, my father had copies of many uh, ERB books, um, uh, mostly the Tarzans and the, um, <clears throat> sorry, uh, some of the Mars books. Um, but I found uh, in a secondhand bookshop in State College, Pennsylvania, I found, ooh, there's a Burroughs that I haven't heard of. Mm. And I picked it up, and it was the efficiency expert. Um, uh, and so I bought it, <laughs> of course. I, had you read and, it? Uh, oh, what? absolutely. Then, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, and took it home to my father, you know, as uh, next time I was home. And, and he was delighted. <laughs> did, he, did he read it and enjoy it with the enthusiasm? He enjoyed, obviously, all the other ERBs, because it is not normal for ERB, right? Oh, well, he, he you know, reads detective stories, too, there you so go. this was along those lines. Yeah, I, 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 they called it uh, non-genre, but I think it's, it's a crime genre, sort of. I mean, it's not full-on crime, but it, uh, or I guess... The There's other- certainly underworld elements yeah but bruce uh the the one of the reviews i read was saying it was like a lot like booth tarkington stories 
which were very popular at the time and mostly forgotten now, um, which are, uh, I, I, I kind of think of them like as the Little Rascals, you know, if you guys remember who the Little Rascals were. I remember the Little Rascals, and I now have the theme song of that going through my head, so yes. Yeah, I found a Booth Tarkington story the other day, and I was like, oh yeah, this uh, he was like super hot. He was, he was like, you know, he, uh, the Magnificent Ambersons, apparently one of uh, the other Edgar Rice Burroughs is sort of modeled on that as well. Uh, the uh, other non-genre ones. He, he doesn't have that many that are... He, he wrote a ton, and not very many of them are outside of the fantasy or science fiction fantasy uh, I didn't realize he wrote. I didn't realize he wrote any outside science. So I read this. So I listened to this one. Uh, I was trying to sell Marissa on uh, one called "The Girl from Hollywood," which is uh, um, another. I've one. read that. Have you? Uh, how is it? Um, uh, I really like it, and I'll. I may talk about it a little bit later when we're talking about the the women in this novel. Uh-huh. Um, uh, there there are. Things that I don't like. He uh, uh, refers to Hispanics by an epithet uh, that is not polite. Um, but uh, uh, as far as the story goes, there are a lot of interesting elements in that one. Mm-hmm. I, I I looked at it on I think it was on LibriVox, um, and I was like, oh yeah, I want I want somebody to read this and tell me how it is because I I really like Edgar Rice Burroughs' writing. I think he's He's pretty spiffy. Um, the last one we did, Evan, you were in for. Uh, what was it called? The Mucker. The Mucker. The Mucker. And it set, yes. starts in Chicago, too, doesn't it? It, it does. It starts in Chicago, uh, goes to the South Pacific, and ends up in New York. And it has a lot of similar uh, sort of Chicago street stuff going on in it. Have you read that one, Trish? Uh, the mucker. Yes, I did after I after your podcast. I oh yeah, the it. cannibal samurai one. <laughs> 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 they're they're less cannibal than they are samurai. They're I guess they're the less samurai than are cannibal. You mean? No, there there are cannibals and samurai on the same island, but they don't eat. I would, yeah, but they, they they seem to be rather degenerate samurai by that point. Yes. I think we discussed that. Yes, so, so they've cannibalized their own armor. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> technically still cannibal samurai so that one uh, has the border um i i would guess between the the unreal and the real uh this one is set in real places i think you can pretty much match uh like uh edgar rice burroughs used to work work at sears um i think sears almost basically shows up in here right he's <laughs> he's, he's selling uh ladies hosiery <laughs> um, and he, he tries to get a job at the mail order catalog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I, so that part, of the, that whole part of the novel, like it actually reminded me a bit of a of a really odd take on kind of like the Alger myth because Horatio Alger, you know, the Alger Horatio Alger story. Uh-huh, yeah, right. Right, the young man yeah, trying like to be good. It's always someone who starts out. Now he doesn't start like really poor, but he he kind of disinherits himself, right, right, to make it in the world. Yep. But in the Alger stories, you always have the kid of the streets, the boot black or something, works mm-hmm. his way up to mm-hmm. run a company or something. It's the myth of the American and, dream, right? But, yeah, but since uh, Torrance is, is fundamentally moral and he does things as straight as he can and, and 
whenever given a choice, he does the straight thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it kind of reminded me of an Aldrich story in that way because he still moves his way up. Right, um, but 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 it, I kind I think it's uh, implicit criticism of the Aldrich because he tries to start at yeah. the top and and that hilariously goes yeah, that's wrong. A, it's like yeah, oh a nice yeah, twist on it. I just found that whole funny though. The whole his attitude coming out of college is is wonderful. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah. So enjoyable. It's like I will put an ad in the newspaper and I'll get one thousand letters in a in a day. Hubris. <laughs> Hubris, yeah, there's a good yeah, it's a good way of putting it. It's like Yeah, well, there were a lot of things I didn't that. notice. More of a traditionally tries to work his way up, doing different jobs, making the right connections, you know. But you know, I think in an Alger story, your connections are like you'll you'll shine the boots of some manager who'll give you a job. But here it's the underworld sort of Helps him out a little bit, mm-hmm. but more yeah, than a little helps bit, saved his life. There's like a whole yeah, class a thing going on there. Lizard. What were we gonna say, mm-hmm. Trish? Yeah, really great. Uh, I was gonna say there were a lot of things I didn't notice when I read this a couple decades ago, but uh, absolutely at the start of the this book, it's the epitome of you know, God give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's not mediocre. Uh, he's he's the best athlete at the school, right? Um, right, and but he quickly it's basically realizes Yale. that that isn't enough to let him succeed in business. Yeah. And in uh, at the unnamed big university uh, that he went to, he graduated last in his class and graduated by the skin of his teeth. There was a, a great line about that. Um, I think he was saying it was, who was it? He said, just like so and so if you flip it on its end he graduated first in his class i like grants uh yeah right ulysses <laughs> yeah. ulysses s grant was it yeah no here it is jimmy torrance worked hard and by dint of long hours and hard-working tutors he finished his college course and won his diploma nor did he forego the crowning hours of his last baseball season although like ulysses s grant he would have graduated at the head of his class had Lewis been turned upside down right well, where did burroughs graduate because if you're going to make the case that it doesn't matter where you graduate, to what, what rank you graduate at, U.S. Grant is a pretty good um, uh, exception that proves the rule. Example. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I think there's a there's a, a, a criticism of edu- formal education going on in here, obviously, a little bit. Uh, um, and uh, what I like, I like the tie that I see back to the mucker, which is is um, sort of the class stratification, right? Um, he sets out that there are these the are there are these classes, and he spends time in the 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 two, I guess you would say, classes, right? The elites and I don't know the those living on the edge, the criminals, um, and however however they do it. And I guess there's there's one mention of the the family. That the the lizard, I love that the lizard has no name. <laughs> he refuses, family he refuses that, to get yeah, a name. Yeah, yeah. The family that the lizard rents an apartment from as his safe house uh, is a Jewish family who think he wor- he works for the FBI or something like that. I guess it wouldn't be the FBI in 1919. A uh, government agency, I think, right, is what they yeah, say. Right, and that's why he's away so much. Right. Um, so he's got he he basically lays out the the two class stratums and and by falling so low that he's selling his clothing, um, and there's a scene there when when he's uh, he's just gonna go sell his clothes and he goes to look in his closet 
and they're not there. I thought, I thought that the lizard had stolen them <laughs> at that point in the story. Like he opened the closet door. It doesn't say closet, but he went to look at his clothes to sell, and they were not there. I'm like, what happened to his clothes? I don't think that's ever resolved. But I thought, I thought, oh, that lizard had stolen because they live in the same apartment building. Yeah, right? and they hadn't known that for like. Weeks, right? And he wouldn't have known that he'd stolen it from his friend because um, he would have burglarized the place when he wasn't there. But I, I think that that's not actually what happened to his clothes. I think maybe he lost track of them or something. Yeah, I assumed that someone else had stolen yeah. them. Uh, yeah, it's never resolved. We never find out who the criminal there was. But the the it's very neat. You know, like you can see how. I read two different um, timelines for when this was written, or how this was written, I guess. One was that it was written over the course of a month, and one that was written, it was written within 10 days. I don't know if that means 10 days in a month, uh, or if it was, you know, just two different numbers. But it's a... some people on, I think it's a Wikipedia entry, call it a novella. It's not a novella, it's a full-on novel, it's just a short novel. Um, and it's about 200 pages, I believe. Right. I've, you know, James M. Cain novels are 99 pages, right? So (laughs) you can, it's an, it's a novel. It's just a, it's a relatively short novel. Um, it's not, you know, it's not a, you know, 45 minute read. It's a five hour read. That's a novel. Anyways, um, the, the interesting part about that is if he's written it over the course of a month in uh, what I read, 1919, um, and then sold it in 21, um, he's actually done a pretty good job of structural, making the structure uh, available to us to see if, you're look, if you, you read Edgar Rice Burroughs before, but I still was tricked. Like, he sets up characters so that we see the pattern, what's going to happen, right? He keeps meeting the girl over and over again. And mm-hmm. also turns out that the girl, the girlfriend's there too, right? Uh, her girlfriend, who I'm like, what is she there for? Oh, she's just there for having someone to talk to. Turns out that that's not the case. He tricked me. Burroughs tricked me. And I thought, oh, he's going to end up with the, the rich girl who's with, the head of the yeah, company. Yeah, with Compton, yeah. Right. That's- that that was my expectation too, and and, and then it got it got subverted. And Elizabeth, aka Eva, I guess, is her, her Edith or e- Edith. Little Eva. Little yeah. Eva, okay, right. Oh, who's Elizabeth then? Maybe, uh, maybe. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Compton. Elizabeth. Oh, she's the, is uh, the right, 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 snobby rich girl. Right. So I thought it was going to be James <laughs> and Elizabeth getting married at the end of the story, right? Um, well, it turns out that's not the case. And then, uh, oh, the uh, the hooker with a heart of gold. She is. The one who he's going to end up with. It's oh, be a damn the flu yeah. again, right? And I, uh, when the flu happened to Jimmy, or yeah, I guess it's Jimmy. Jimmy. I was going to call him James, but it's Jimmy. Um, I thought he was being poisoned by uh, the the bad the bad actor at the company. I thought, Bince. yeah, Bince, right? So I I I thought, oh, it's Burroughs is he's actually poisoned, but no, he was just suffering from the flu. Right, which was a thing in 1918, hugely, right? It was right, a huge so, pandemic yeah, so. of 1918 right. to 1919 so we, killed 
more people than the war, I believe, oh, or yeah. at least on a level with it. It's, yes, it was it was massive, and and the cultural legacy of that is not well understood compared to the cultural legacy of of World War One, right? So here here I'm getting tricked a little bit by the fact that yeah, I'm not seeing it in the context of when it was written as well. But then when she she's got the flu, I'm like, oh shit, that's actually a thing. Um, but because these are fictional characters, it 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 just a way to bring people together. But actually, it's it's he's he has a, like a pretty sophisticated way of doing what he's gonna do without actually letting you you know say, oh, this is totally predictable. Even though I had you know sort of expectations of where the plot was going to go and it did go there it just didn't uh it matched us up with different characters along the way um the fact that uh bince was um a bad actor uh and that he would get his comeuppance i thought it was going to be way earlier it happened quite late it's uh, a lot of stuff in it is very sophisticated for a you know pulp magazine uh that never saw a reprint in 40 years pulp magazine novel mm-hmm. that's edgar rice burroughs for you right he's just a really good writer yeah that was one of my favorite things about the book is that it's uh it's more than you would expect it to be it's uh it's more sophisticated as you say it has little surprises and ironies and some social commentary that I really wasn't expecting. <laughs> uh, I hadn't remembered this in it. Um, I think I just read it as a straight uh, adventure novel back then. But, um, uh, yeah, I love that he doesn't end up with the girl that we first meet. Um, or And, and okay, the... Uh, the hooker with the heart of gold nobly dying to make ray- way for the <laughs> later relationship. That's a bit of a trope now. It probably was a bit of a trope back then. I but guess, um, yeah. but I really love that uh, she, uh, Ava or Edith, uh, stood up for herself. Um, you know, there's that thing where uh, the uh, the lizard is telling her, you know, he's he's got class and you are not for him. And she says... Uh, uh, at least I earn my money, unlike you. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. um, so, so yeah, there are some some uh, interesting twists and turns in in this uh, novel, and I really enjoyed that about it. Lots, lots of little period details. I know Evan wants to talk about the IWW. <laughs> well, I want to talk mostly about scientific management, actually. Oh, okay. I'll mention the IWW, the International Workers. Yeah, they just make the a world. Cameo. They make they make a camp. Never, camp. It's just IWW. They're never named. They're, they're never oh, named, okay. and it, and and it's a it's a false lead because the the note is a fake, but it's a it's 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 part of Bince's uh, plot against uh, the milk truck drivers go on strike. Yeah, there, there is a, there is, is that's job. right. There is a, there is a strike, and that's a yeah, that that's the only job he loses because he didn't, wasn't incompetent. <laughs> Well, no, no, no but he quits. He, he quits. Was a really his, good boxer. He was a really he good sense. No, no, he was a good hosier salesman too, right? They were they're trying oh, to yes, retain right, yeah. him. You know, he's uh, so yeah. He's not. He he's a typical Burroughsian character in the sense that he's he is extraordinary, right? The mucker was extraordinarily tough. This guy yeah. is extraordinarily, uh, I don't know, 
Uh, handsome. <laughs> That's not true. He's extraordinarily uh, athletic, right? And and he has one other grace, yeah, which is he's um, a good person. I guess is the way you would put it, right? He, so 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 the good person finally makes good is kind of like the through line of this, even though he he's. He's he he's spoiled at every turn at his plans for much of the novel till uh, until Eva gets him to apply for the efficiency expert job. I mean, he's that that's the real yeah, turning point. She's, she, she's actually the most interesting character in the book, right? Because we we don't meet her until quite late. Um, well, quite deep into the book, you know, the lizard is is fun, but he's not. Uh, I'm not. I I just think of him as sort of a sidekick character, right? Um, and our hero, he's he's just too, I don't know, good. <laughs> to he just reminds me of a Burroughsian character. But she's actually up there doing stuff. Um, you know, she's she's out on dates. She's having those uh, those meals at the at the place. And Fe- then, Fe- Feinheimer's is such a weird place. When you finish that, I want to talk about Feinheimer's. Yeah, I think. Oh, I think it's a. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of this is based on his own real experience, as far as I could tell by reading. You know, he he was doing all these shitty jobs um, until he figured out what he was meant to do, which was turns out not running a large motor car manufacturing <laughs> agency or uh, uh, air, aircraft. <laughs> Um, uh, like like his he, apparently Burroughs' two brothers went to Yale and that he because he didn't he he thought of himself as a clown or other people thought of him as a clown um, and then he somehow manages to make himself an expert at something which is writing right if there is a guy who is more responsible for you know Pulp Fiction in the early 20th century I don't think I don't think you could name him. Right, it's him. He's the he's the he's the guy who who made those sales and turned those things into movies. I I kept expecting there to be a movie adaptation of this because why wouldn't there be? It's perfectly good. Yeah, you like a twenty silent movie or something. Oh, it'd be great. They even go to the movies in this, right? Right. It it totally or a thirties movie, right? It's it's. it's got a lot of stuff. I mean, it's set in Chicago. I actually, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm big uh, young Indiana Jones. Uh, I I I've known that. Yes. Um, and it's funny because he he does uh when uh young Indiana Jones goes to Chicago in the twenties, um he works as a waiter at an Italian restaurant, um and he gets sort of uh, involved with the mob, including Scarface, right, um. And there's the, the Follies and all sorts of, you know, Chicago is a very important place in America in, in the 20s. It's, it's sort of the center. New York's pretty exciting. Uh, Los Angeles has some things up and coming. But Chicago is the center of, of the excitement. I, I've heard it argued that Chicago is the real here. American city. I've got to make a little pitch here about Chicago. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Evan. Uh, the the best book about Chicago, I, I think, ever written, and actually it's one of the best environmental history books ever written too. It's by uh, William Cronin called Nature's Metropolis, and Nature's Metropolis. its central location makes it key not only to American industrial history and institutional history and business history, but also e- eco- ecology, hmm. right? Because like when the Northwoods of Wisconsin were were clear cut, 
right? All that wood went to Chicago. Mm-hmm. When the plains were transformed into into pr- prairie and grain, and we got to remember Frank Norris, the octopus is all about grain. Um, that's another great book to you want to, to sell look me at. On that. Some, yeah. Uh, that all that grain went to the grain elevators in Chicago, and all the meat as, yeah. as the cow punchers were replaced by the big ranchers. All that is is all that meat's going through Chicago to yeah, the all those, plants. All those. So, um, so Cronin argues that it 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 really becomes the central focus of of the of not only uh, like the emergence of American industrial capitalism, but the the transformation of the entire American landscape mm-hmm. from you know. From nature to, you know, whatever uh, the environment is for capitalism, right? Just commodities, right? Mm-hmm. And in nature fact, commodities. all those um, range romances, there's a magazine called Range Romances, it, all the westerns where, you know, there's mm-hmm. cow punchers and riding for the Circle K, you know, the brands, riding for the brand. All of those guys, those cowboys, are working on ranches that are sending cows by train to Chicago mm-hmm. for slaughter and uh, distribution to the elsewhere, but uh, even Weird Tales is is headquarters in Chicago, right? It was it wasn't like New York was the center of the publishing industry. Chicago was it, and I guess it's still a big deal, right? But when you think about the United States, it's not the first city to come up in your mind, or at least being outside of it. That's not the well, first well, the center of the American mind. labor movement uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. And there's a labor the leader in here. The market was right? there. The 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 um, Pullman strike. These are all yeah. It, it, it's considered yeah. It's considered quintessentially American because I mean, look at say I mean you, you know laugh at this reference. Clark Griswold. Where is Clark Griswold from? He's from Chicago. <laughs> who is and Clark? So it's who a, is Clark Griswold? The the uh, National Vacations. Vacations. So yes. Yeah, so so in. Uh, so, so in the second one, when he's going to Europe, and the nation says, like, well, oh, where are you from? Oh, sounds like Chicago. It's like, so Chicago, I mean, New York is a coastal town. New, Los Angeles is a West Coast town. Chicago is for, is the all-American big city, for mm. better or worse. I, mm. I'm definitely going to have to read this book now that you mentioned it. Wait, isn't Chicago also second yeah, city? Yeah, Nature's Metropolis. It's so good. Second city? Isn't that? Uh, yeah, where? it's been called yeah. the second city. But oh, um, that's also the comedy group that... Uh, the, yeah, the that plays. Uh, right, SCTV. SCTV yeah. is out of Chicago. No, not SCTV. Um, SCTV is out of uh, Ontario. Um, no, Second City. I think is. Uh, didn't they have a branch in Chicago? I'm pretty sure. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe Toronto is the second city to to Chicago. <laughs> I don't know. I'll look it up. In any case. Also, a major destination of the Great Migration, of course, because all the all the railroads. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and Route sixty six starts so. there. Of course, yeah. that is an aspect that's completely ignored in this book. Of course, yeah. Not, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's a single black person in this mentioned. Is there? Not that I could tell, and no mention of Bronze Town or anything. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. He 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 takes a bunch of jobs. Uh, we got we got the the Jewish landlord. Um, I don't think there's any. I think it's pretty it's pretty white. Uh, it, what about I think the? There was someone with the a labor leader uh, Hispanic. Well, the labor surname. leader who 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 tries to I don't know make Eva sit on his lap. 
Wasn't it? Murray. Murray. Steve Murray. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he he that's that maybe was a thread where the owner of the of uh, the place, I mean, he kind of he could have got killed for what he di- did in the boxing ring, right? There's a couple uh like I was expecting that to come back and haunt him in a way that it didn't when he he basically broke oh. broke the uh I mean that's that's the plot uh, one of the plots in pulp fiction where he he cheats uh, on the the big deal and doesn't go down in the ring you know like that's a sort of a traditional boxing story where the guy won't take a dive in this case he he sort of foils it before it even happens right um he 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 foils their plans to avoid having the guy take a dive early enough that they they didn't lose all their money but they were that's why they wanted to kill Bruce Willis in Pulp Fiction, right? For what he did. Yeah. If I recall correctly, that's how Matt Murdock's father died ha, ha, in, uh, right. in the origin right. of Daredevil. Oh, he refused to throw a fight. That's right. Because his kid mm. was watching. That's right. In fact, I think that's oh, because the, the kid is watching. Well. This time it's the girl. I was just reminded of how young our, our hero is, because as soon as the girl walks in, he can't he can't take the dive. He can't he can't be beat up. In front of the girl, the cute girl. Is that? Oh, yeah, I guess that's. I mean, he's only what twenty-two or something, right? I assume. He's, yeah, he's fresh out of college. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, actually, he. Uh, that's the other thing I appreciate. He's so he's such a clean writer in terms of like I know exactly what's happening. I know. I, I think this is his. You know, other than the fact that he's got this fantastic imagination for for other stuff, you know. Um, he's just, his writing never, uh, requires that I do an investigation into what the hell he's trying to say. (laughs) It's always really clear. And then with mo in terms of motivation, it's always pretty darn clear, right? So he's, he sets up a whole system. And then I actually had a thesis, um, I want to give you guys to look at because I think it's pretty interesting as to why, like, this is a book. Uh, we're talking about it on an SFF audio podcast. Why are we talking about a non-genre uh, book? Um, and why is it a good book to read, even though I think pretty much anything that is non-genre is bad? <laughs> I don't like most general stuff. I think it's pretty pretty terrible. Why, why do we care? Um, so I, I was explaining this book uh, to my family uh, when I was you know over there the other day, and I said... Oh, it's it's a Edgar Rice Burroughs romance, um, and I, it's kind of interesting. All his books are romances. I started thinking about, yeah, that's true. All his books are romances, and yet he's a dude, right? And I just finished watching uh, the first episode of a new Netflix show. I'll try pretty much anything and then get angry about it. Um, in this case, it was a highly competent uh, show called uh, Virgin River, filmed locally but set in California. And it's, you know, a new girl comes to a small town and she's going to be a, a nurse practitioner there. But her boss is cranky and there's a handsome bar dude and she has a car accident, blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, it's not for me, but I kind of like the way Burroughs does romance. It, he He's focused on it in a way that I think a lot of other writers like Robert E. Howard isn't. Or, you know, obviously Lovecraft, not on it at all. 
kind of finds it totally uninteresting. But this is a male romance in a certain sense. It's it's got this tough guy, and he's he's got to uh, find a job and make himself worthy of a girl. Oh, also worthy of his father worthy and his, of his family, father, that- right? All that. But I was thinking about what the theme underneath it all was, and basically it is how do we know who we want to spend a lot of time with? I'm not saying the rest of our lives, but a lot of time with, maybe have a kid with. Uh, because if you look at it that way, that's basically what's happening for everybody, right? So uh, the hooker with the heart of gold, well, you know, I thought maybe she's in hospital for a venereal disease because <laughs> those <laughs> were a thing then, right? Uh, and still are, I guess. Uh, but if that's not the pro- if, if it's not a physical problem, um, she seems emotionally uh, a good person. Maybe she'd make a good mate, right? The the girl, the daughter of the industrialist, we thought at first, I think we all thought probably, that she mm-hmm. was a perfectly stand-up lady. Um, her husband, or her husband-to-be, her intended, turns out he's not. Um, and she doesn't see it. So that's a flaw. But but also, she, she, she just, I mean, the impression I got is she just was not into him, really. I mean, it was right. almost like a relationship by default, so... My expectations to the novel is like, oh yeah, he's she's gonna throw him over for Jimmy because Absolutely. she's not really into the this, plot. Keeps into, throwing them together in these endless series of meet cutes, right? Exactly. It, it's like a it's, it's like it's like a Christmas romance movie. Totally, and that's why that's why maybe it it would have to be tweaked if they were gonna do an adaptation of it, right? If they were going to well, make a movie. they wouldn't. I mean, this, the obvious thing to do would be to collapse the characters of Elizabeth and Harriet together into one person. But that would I be really the obvious liked thing to the do. interplay yeah. between that, that, the three be... distinct women. I agree. Uh, and, Which and uh, you don't get a lot options. of in Burroughs' books. <laughs> right? Usually, if, if it was a, male, a, a female romance, right? This is a f- romance novel written by a woman. Um, you would have something like the woman is the one making her way in the world today with everything she's got. Is that set in Chicago? <laughs> was that a, uh, No, that was New York, That's wasn't Boston. it? Boston. Oh, was it Boston? <laughs> what what show is that? Um, Isn't that the theme song to Cheers? No. Oh, yeah, you're right. That is. No, what's the one with the lady who worked for uh, Lou Grant? Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah, Mary That's Tyler. Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Okay, sorry, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Failed to recognize the... Show shot in, the shot in Los Angeles pretending to be in Minneapolis. Okay. Anyways, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, right? If she's making her way... Oh, I'm pretty sure that... Anyways, she's going to make it after all. That's what it is. Okay. So That's Mar- what she is. <laughs> Mary Tyler Moore style character. She's going into uh, a new life in a new city and taking a job and... Mer- making her way in the world, she would be given a choice of three dudes. One's going to be a criminal type, one's going to be a rich socialite, and one's going to be somebody else, right? And then she has to sort of navigate which one is the one she wants to spend her life, her happily ever after with. In this case, um, we, we have uh, the hooker with the heart of gold, we've got the rich socialite, except she's not such a socialite as she is. I mean, why does she show up at that uh, Chicago uh, uh, dive, right? She shows up a lot. She's slumming for the thrill of it. She's slumming it, right? 
and her friend. Yeah, go for it, Paul. Yeah, because because lots lots of people go to that place. Um, I I had it wasn't I for the jazz the music, was it? <laughs> no, but it, it it was it was mentioned that that been. place was kind of uh, here. Here it is. Feinheimer's Cabaret held a unique place among the restaurants of the city. Its patrons were from all classes of society. At noon, its many tables were largely filled by staid and respectable businessmen, but at night, a certain element of the underworld claimed it as their own. And there's always a sprinkling of people of the stage, artists, literary men, and politicians. It was, as a certain wit described it, a social goulash. For in addition to its regular habitus, there were a few who came occasionally from the upper stratum of society in the belief that they were doing something devilish. As a matter of fact, slumming parties which began and ended at Fine Harmers were of no uncommon occurrence, and as the place was more more than usually orderly, it was with the greatest safety that society made excursions into the underworld of crime and vice through its medium. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's kind of like yeah, this is the place. This mm-hmm. is the place where you slum. It's, it's the safely. happening place. If you want to be cool, um, you have to. It's like a club, basically, right? Um, uh, dance club, I guess. Um, at the time. It, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't mention the music as being particularly great, but that was sort of you know Chicago in the in the twenties is a music place, as well as uh, you know it, everything's happening there. Um, did you guys notice the art I put in the audiobook? I did not. Uh, I took it from the cover of the first uh, serial in Argosy. Uh, Argosy All Story Weekly, October eighth, nineteen twenty one, and uh, it says the efficiency expert by Edgar Rice Burroughs on the cover, and then there's a dude looking in the into a car uh, or train car, but I'm pretty sure it's a car, and the lady is looking out at the dude, and I'm like, who are these people? So I thought that the dude look if you if you look at your MP3 file. Um, I'm 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 going to look at it now. Yeah, you'll see it. It's basically a lot of red and black, and um, a guy in a, a slouch hat, and she's wearing a hat, and sort of dressed like a flat. She's a flapper. She's got short bobbed hair, right? Um, I thought that that would be Jimmy <laughs> looking in, um, and that's one of their meat cutes. But actually, uh, somebody found this out. That's actually the lizard. <laughs> spotting her as she's driving by. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Just because I, like, I, I pictured Jimmy in his, my mind. I was like, what does he look like? Well, I guess a little like uh, like uh, John Carter, right? <laughs> except in, a, in fancy clothes um, or progressively worse clothes as the story goes the on. The simple Borosian hero, yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. There are I've seen e- two different covers that both feature one guy being cornered by two other guys. Right. And that looks like the uh That's Frank the attempt by Bence to get him croaked mm-hmm. by uh by the um uh two of the shop guys. Yeah, the the whole the that whole subplot of, you know, <laughs> the guy stealing from from the till I guess yep. it's not the till, but Both the, the payroll. Checks. He's yeah. embezzling. Yeah, he's, he's skimming from the payroll. payroll. Right, and and the and the gangsters are. I, I don't know if they're gangsters, but they're definitely gambling uh, criminals. Are are waiting for the for the marriage, right? That whole that whole pressure, um, I thought was pretty effective, and and also like it it is sort of at that 
theme is like how do you know you can trust a guy with your business, your empire, right? And it, it's really a very interesting – if you start looking – like I was thinking about it as a – if this was a medieval story, right, it would be she's the princess and, and the king wants a uh, successor for his kingdom, right? Who's going right. to take over my empire? Who's going to take over my business? And this is actually – I mean this is what kind of – what capitalism is, is allowing a lot of um, – empires and kingdoms to be built up um, and they can be hostily taken over. They can go into decline. Um, they uh, can be- have you ever played Crusader Kings 2? I have never, but that's- yeah, that, that game's basically about yeah running your uh, royal or noble family right, through centuries of history. Your, your employees are your, are your knights, right? And your, your, your vassals, they, they can scheme against your, you. They're kind of your yeah. customers. <laughs> Right? Yeah. yeah, there's all sorts of analogies to be made there, but the 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 relationship between men and women that is, if if you take the story a little bit seriously as like what is this about? What is it? Why does it resonate with us? Um, the fact that he is a he comes from an upper class family, which means he will himself inherit wealth. That's a benefit to whatever woman uh, marries him, right? Um, he. He went to a Ivy League school, so presumably he has all the business connections that he's ever going to need. Remember all those guys hanging out in his his room at the beginning of the story when he's he's trying to study. Yeah, <laughs> um, the fact that they're all going to go work for their dads at whatever corporations they're they're going off to work for. I mean, that's one of my students. <laughs> Yesterday, I was helping him with his application to some management program at a university. I was like. Okay, we need to answer these questions. <laughs> and I ask him the questions, and like he has no idea what the answer should be. And I said, "Well, it says why are you interested in this program?" <laughs> and he says, "I don't know. <laughs> How did you choose this?" Well, you know, my dad's my dad runs a business. I, his whole thing is he needs to get up to speed so that he can uh, come back and take over the family business. This is sort of standard stuff. When I was a kid, I worked for uh, my mom's business, and then I took over the business, right? That's just mm-hmm. sort of standard. So that's not normally the way we think about it. Jimmy is going for the whole hog American dream, right? He has basically turned himself into a kind of immigrant, right, by denying his access to his father. I thought it was hilarious that all this time his son's on trial, <laughs> For murder and locked <laughs> and up in prison, almost dies of the flu. Doesn't know what the fuck's going on because right? <laughs> his son isn't writing to him. <laughs> he never sent that letter because he saw the the girl and the uh, yeah, and was inspired by right. Yeah, and that, that just goes to the whole subversion thing. Oh yeah, she's he's ins- she's inspiring him. He's she's she's making him a better person by him make striving and not giving up. And yeah, it's right. Like, nope, she's not going to be the person. Uh, I mean, she hires him at the end, but yeah, they're not going to be the romantic uh, couple that the the book expects you to think that it's going to happen. But I would have liked the book to have actually done a little better. I mean, I mean, we get hints now. You look in retrospect that he has a Harriet's really interested in him, but it would been it would have yeah, been nice. It was not obvious to me that she was that at all. Right. I, only in retrospect, like right. oh yeah, she she keeps noticing him and pointing him out to Elizabeth. It would have been nicer if there's a little more there. I there, would, I think it was if it was a film, and I was looking at that scene where you've you've got the two of them sort of meeting cute, and you have the the Harriet in the background 
sort of with a look on her face. You could totally do that and see it in the, you know, if she was slightly out of focus, right? Or, you, just, yep. you know, with the filming technique, you can do this rack focus where you suddenly change the focus. So, that, mm-hmm. I mean, that is absolutely, it's some, this is the different techniques of different genre, uh, mediums, right? And, and, and that here, it is, it is, it is obvious if you're looking for it. But he's a skillful enough writer that he, um, he's trying to avoid us being, I don't know, knowing exactly where it's going going to go. There's, in fact, there's a whole narrative voice going on in this book that's pretty funny. Um, he does it a few times in the book. It's like, who's telling this story? Uh, early on, I think it's in the you know opening paragraphs. He basically says um, uh, the contest of this uh, boxing match between a senior. And a freshman uh, would go about how you'd expect, but that's not the focus of our, yeah. <laughs> of our story. And I'm like, what? You you just you gave up an opportunity to give a fight a fight right at the beginning. Your um, if they're doing the movie version of it, they're not going to not show yeah. that fight, right? He's playing with us. He's playing a game with us, and I think it is that Algernon uh, uh, Horatio, Horatio Alger. Alger. That's right. Horatio yeah, Alger <laughs> style, Algernon Blackwood story is different. Um, Horatio Alger s- style of uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and gets your stuff going, right? His the letter from his father's is uh, sort of the thing that kicks him in the pants, right? And then he has another kick in the pants when <laughs> reality says, "Guess what? <laughs> your, your arrogant hubris is not going to work out for you, bud." Not if you uh, if you don't go back and work for your dad, you're gonna have to make your way in the world. It takes everything you got. That's <laughs> not Chicago. It's Boston. Actually, you know what? That's that's that whole that that stuff reminded me of a little bit was mm-hmm. Martin Eden. Mm-hmm. Martin Eden sort of starts out that same way. Like, of course, he's trying to be a writer. That's Jack London's novel. Mm-hmm. He wants to be a writer, but. You know, he starts out. He's not. He doesn't really understand why all his stories are getting kicked back from the from the different magazines and publishers. And you know, he has to kind of work his way through that. Was it? Was it? Uh, do you think the reason Jack London was being rejected is because he wasn't writing about himself as, enough? Do we know? Because I don't he, know. I, like I actually don't know how many, how long Jack London went through that period himself. He just it's in it's in Martin Eden. Mm-hmm. In that uh, that novel, there's that that period where he's like, "I'm going to be a writer," and he thinks if he can just work really hard and and write stories, which he does. Uh, Martin Eden is Burroughs is a hit character. straight off, though, right? But you know, it's he gets this frustration that like the reality sets in, and then he has to like change his approach. I think Burroughs sold sold his very first thing, which was that uh, you know, under the moons of Mars. Pretty sure that's what happened. Could be wrong. I, I don't know enough, maybe, to say about his life story, but I'm very impressed with this book. It's it's um, yeah, it's fun, and 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 I it really had me thinking about about that. You know, how do you know what a person's character is? I mean, we see this uh, in in another way in the book, and and it's why I kept thinking about it. I guess is it just kept coming up again and again when he goes in for job interviews, right? Actually, when he decides that maybe his ad in the paper is not going to cut it, um, advertising for a position, um, they ask him, what experience do you have? 
right? They don't say, where did you get educated? They want to know, well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's like uh, in programming. I'm not a programmer, but I'm friends with a programmer. Um, if you can program, they don't care if you went to university and got a you know, computer science degree. They only care that you can program, right, that you can do the job. And even if you go, like, if you go in for a, an, a job at some place, they'll give you an interview, sure, but that's after the test. And the test is to solve a, uh, a certain find bugs and fix fix them in a certain period of time, right? It isn't at uh, let's look at your diploma and <laughs> that sort of thing. It's it's not that at all. It's it's all like practical testing. You don't you go in there and you can solve the the bug uh, problem in a reasonable period of time, and they uh, you know find out you're not a serial killer in the interview then you'll get the job. It has nothing to do with your degree. And so when he goes into a business, and me being a, you know, I was an employer at one point, and I've been employed, what do you want is a, from a, an employee is a person who will do the job in a competent way and won't slack off, right? Somebody who can help you with your business. Um, when you are... Uh, trying to do that looking at what they have on paper isn't enough because as when when he says he's an efficiency expert and uh eva fakes all those documents for him um it turns out that he kind of was i guess in the world of this story um but it's fake right and a lot of the story turns on what those papers in the in the safe I mean, that's that's the other thing that I thought it was, oh, he's really clever. That safe-cracking stuff, I never thought that would come back up. I, I was like, oh, that's just, or or if it was, it would be, like, in a way that it, you know, it wouldn't. The fact yeah, that he's it, a safe it, cracker. It felt like flavor, but it was not. It was actually rele- plot relevant to yeah, and the Yeah, and I thought, oh, it's Jimmy's going to use him to break, you know, break in and get the get the stuff that's been locked away in a, in a or... Break in before the papers can be destroyed. Well, it turns out none of that. All my predictions didn't happen, and yet it all yeah, came together. The same thing. And Instead, the, he calls accountants. Right, and the, but the thing is, is the accountants are what their job really is is to see what the truth is. Right, that's why if you if you look at somebody's ledger, you can see if they're stealing from the till because the numbers don't add up, not with the amount of money in the. In the vault, right? So, what what is actually happening when the when the dad suggests you need to uh, I, I need to hire an efficiency expert? We don't know it's the dad at that point, right? Um, and he and he hires him. Um, we I worked it out pretty quick that oh, that's the dad of the girl, right? And then oh, okay, so the number of coincidences that all happen in this story are unbelievable, right? But, you know, the Chicago is a very small town, apparently. But um, the the whole point of it is what is the difference between what it says on paper or what it says in your ancestry or what it says, what you say to other people versus your actions, right? It's about the truth of, of stuff. So, um, some guy could come up to me and say, yeah, I'm a podcaster. I'm a great podcaster. I've done it for years. I'm amazing. Hire me. And I say, okay, let me listen to your podcast. That's what I say. 
right? And yeah. if I listen to the podcast and the shit, I'm never going to hire him no matter how great his line is, right? It's not that I'm hiring for podcasts, right? That's the idea, right? Is that it's all about wh- where's the evidence of it and how, how can we trust it? Um, and in a relationship, if you're being in a romantic relationship with somebody, you want to find a person who you won't hate for the rest of your life. <laughs> right because um you know people put on an act and they pretend uh, but if you're looking for it and you're and you're attuned to it and it's very subtle right cuz you're blinded by all sorts of especially if you're young you're blinded by um what is it uh chemicals in your bloodstream <laughs> that make you insane basically uh reproductive chemicals that make you think that uh other people are your vision of what they are rather than what they are. Character is very hard to assess. And I think you can only get character over a long period of time, like you get, at least in this book of five hours, right? We get the sense that, oh, Jimmy is a stand-up guy, right? And that in his way, the lizard is too. And so is Eva. And apparently the father is. Um, And... The, the girl we thought who was the romantic lead, she is not. She, it, she's, she's not a bad person, but she's not a good judge of character. And that'll get you into trouble. I think it's more trouble. than that, though. She, mm-hmm. It's not just that she's a bad judge of character. It's also the way she treats people. Um, there, there are situations where she and Harriet are both thinking of trying to help Jimmy. Mm-hmm. But what Elizabeth says is... Give my chauffeur your name and, and right, address, right, right, and he'll right. send you some money. Whereas Harriet says, "Here's my address. Come see what we can do for you." Mm-hmm. And then later, Elizabeth tries to give him a hundred dollars. Right. Whereas Harriet says, uh, "Please stick around. We can help you. I have connections. We can do something to move you on in life." So mm-hmm. those are just those little details are very, very subtle, right? Yeah, they're subtle details, but they really show what kind of person Elizabeth is and how she thinks about people and the little people in general. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what a better person Harriet is. Mm-hmm. And it's not that Elizabeth is a bad person, right? It's it's that it, she she has a malaise over her relationship with uh, Bince. Um, she she sort of reacts in the wrong way to, like you're saying, she wants to pay him, pay him because obviously he's poor, <laughs> um, and not thinking about what he would think of that, right? She, so it's right. almost kind of like um, what I guess this is what they say: why why people who read novels are much more emotionally intelligent. And <laughs> they always say that. It's because uh, we're trying to be telepathic. We're trying to think about what other people would think about in that situation. This is a very dangerous thing to do. Um, but, uh, you know, this is also what people say, right? I wanted to like the characters more, right? I, I, was, I wrote a review of the first episode of The, the Witcher. This is a new uh, <laughs> Netflix yeah, show. Yeah, the new Netflix series. And I, was, I, I made it into a big joke basically saying it was the it was a luxurious and very long cut scene <laughs> because that's exactly what it was is the only thing we really care about the cut scene is whether we can skip it right so that we can get to the actual play um because uh, what what a, what a cut scene's notorious for 
boring the shit out of you while you're waiting for you to get sort of a visceral, your own visceral reaction rather than a uh, vicarious reaction through the characters reacting to stuff that you're not involved with. So I, I, I think he is very talented. And this is a very subtle book for bringing up basically eternal questions that I, I don't think we have the answers to. But I, I, like I could compare this to um, a really uh, favorite of mine, Ivanhoe. You guys know this book? Paul, did yeah, you? Yeah, I read Ivanhoe a long yeah, time. Yeah, I heard of it. Yeah. I, oh, you should. Uh, if you haven't read Ivanhoe, it's great. There's many movie adaptations as well. Um, it's about, it's kind of a similar premise in that there's a, a father disowns his son and he uh, has to make his way in the world and he's traveling around and there's a Jewish family that, uh, you know, you want him to, to hook up with because the girl's really nice and the dad's real, he's got, he's got a few problems, but ultimately they're good people. And, and there's also this evil family that's, you know, the Normans who are trying to, uh, roast the Jews to get the money out of them. And, um, it's like, well, these are, you know, these are sort of practical capitalism problems we all have to deal with it. Or in this case, feudalism problems, but they're related uh, that we all have to deal with. And who can you trust? And, and what what makes somebody a good person? Versus how much money do they have? How pretty are they? Because you know, <laughs> we've all uh, presumably we've all met people who are incredibly pretty, and you wouldn't want to spend any time with them <laughs> because they're they're just horrible to be around. If you know what I mean. Exactly. I know exactly what you mean. I, I was thinking movie adaptations, and I just thought of a movie that kind of borrows this Horatio Alger idea that we see in the efficiency expert. You've probably seen it, Jesse, because you've seen a ton of movies. Do you remember the Michael J. Fox movie, The Secret of My Success? Hmm. That's – you know what? I think that – I think you're right. I haven't thought about that movie ever because he, since he gradu- I've seen it. He graduates from college. He has no luck finding any job, and, that, and he winds hmm. up – Winds up going to his uncle's mail room and then poses as another uh, poses as an executive. He winds up uh, sleeping with his aunt. It's and, a romantic but he comedy. Did, but That's right. He, he meets the girl, but and together they save the company, and he becomes a success. So that's 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 that. I was thinking particularly the beginning where he goes to job after job, and they say too much experience, too little experience. Uh, right, right. And, and he just he just can't catch a break. Um, <laughs> he eventually, he eventually, because he is a good person, actually work, makes it work out in the end. There's the there's the same. Uh, I think the next year, that's pretty funny. Um, Michael J. Fox did a movie called Bright Lights, Big City, which is kind of the opposite. Which is, yeah, that, yeah, that's that's totally that's the not hardcore, um, you know, sleazy version of of the Secret of My Success, which is sort of a breezy light movie, right? Yeah. That's good. I've forgotten about both of those movies. It's funny. Yeah, so uh, you could probably cobble together a uh, version of this just by editing old movies together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, But, uh, yeah, go for it. Oh, are we going to talk about efficiency? Yeah, go for it. There's um, some things I I would like to at least bring up here about efficiency. It actually played a a fairly small role in the novel because 
pretty soon after he gets the job, he figures out, you know, that there's something fishy with the payroll, and that and it becomes more of an accountant issue than an efficiency issue. Well, hey, I love how but he's, this he's, is really big into the. This is really important in the historical context of this novel, and um, you know, it, in a way, it's almost foreshadowed with the milkman strike because that's not a it's not a profession that's easily scientifically managed, mm. not like a factory. Right. Mm -hmm. And workers have a little bit more power in a situation like that, where it's more based on their intuition, their skill and all that. So part of the point of scientific management and Frederick Winslow Taylor wrote his book, The Principles of Scientific Management in 1911. Right. So that's eight years before this book was written. And we see in this book, like the the popular version of mm -hmm. Of Taylor's, he's he's cribbing, he's memorized stuff from it. Yeah, I, I forget the name of it, but it's it's essentially like the the popular version of of this, right? The, that you'd give to a manager who's maybe just to get the the brief points. It's kind of the same stuff, but there's a lot more in principles of scientific management on breaking up work into as many distinct components as possible, and part of this intention is to disempower the the knowledge of workers. So there was an old saying, uh, and I got this from a, a history book on this subject. It's, it's the saying was the manager's brains are under the workman's cap. Mm -hmm. So basically, it means like really the reason the factory works at all is not because of what the managers are doing; it's because of what the workers know. And and in in the nineteenth century, this is how a lot of factories ran. You know, you had the business people who did the business stuff and production was done by the workers or the union and it was arranged mm -hmm. by them. And that's why you had things like Blue Monday where, where you know, everyone was still drunk from Sunday so they would just sharpen tools all day on Monday. They, you know, they didn't produce things but they kind of did things by their own schedule and knowledge. Right? So scientific management comes in and says, no, we've got to have this all under the manager's cap. You have to have all this or manager's what kind of hat does the manager wear? Whatever. Mm -hmm. Not a cap, but it, it, that they have to have all the knowledge. And the way he does this is by breaking up tasks into into like sometimes thousands of different um, distinct things. And that's really what efficiency was was about, right? And it, it's kind of summarized in this novel. Um, it's a, it, and it, the heart of it though is to disempower workers and to disempower unions. And that's where industrial unionism then responds. And we see a little, just brief mention of the IWW, but again, it's a fake letter. It, it's it's not. It's just there's a threat, right? Just mm -hmm. as part of the, um, yeah, we'll, we'll go on strike if you keep doing that. But you know, he does fire workers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Jimmy. lets five people Jimmy go. Does does let people go? Uh, yeah, quote and, unquote, let people go. So okay. workers had in it a very clear reason to oppose this movement towards scientific management. You know, just for you know. Their, their, their livelihood, their survival was at stake in some cases. So industrial unionism becomes more strong in the early 20th century because of this. And so the goal of industrial unionism is you organize the whole factory, the whole industry, like the UAW or something. You can't just organize a craft because, like in the old AFL style of union, because that can be, that can be, uh, you can be de-skilled. Because of machinery, scientific management, new techniques, man you know, all this stuff. So the response is industrial unionism, which is what the IWW said, but the CIO said the same thing. 
So I don't know. I, I, I thought a lot about this listening to the novel, and mm-hmm. I, I thought it would have been a little bit more. I was kind of disappointed. I think it just seemed to do too much efficiency stuff. But, uh, the word uh, uh, I, I, I anyway, spend... I, I think that's an important like context for this. I mean, the novel mm-hmm. is called Efficiency X, and that's the yeah. I, it doesn't tell you the politics what it's about, it. right? I don't quite know where Burroughs's class politics are because he's you know he, he's slumming. He loses the job. He's of a union. He's a slum. IWWRC. It's kind of like a thug, thuggish group. Yeah. And sympathetic with Jimmy Torrance, who is, you know, canning people. Mm-hmm. He's, he's sympathetic with the, I mean, it's funny, the relationship he has to the police, right? And the, the one cop who yeah. keeps showing up in the, in the story. Um, it's not uh, 100%, you know, up and up. Uh, he doesn't think, you know, that you should spend all your time praising the cops, but he's also not going to sully himself with criminality. But he'll spend time with yeah. criminals because they're perfectly good people. It's kind of, you know, he's having it both ways. Um, I, I, I thought it was interesting. It. I mean, he has three different people talking about the police and none of them have anything good to say. Uh, I mean, Lizard says... It Once in a while, they get police. it in for some guy, but they'll leave us alone if we leave them alone. But little Ava says, none of those big bruisers knows what decency is. And if you're decent to them, they think you're afraid of them. That's He's right. got it in for everybody. That's what being a policeman does to a man. Mm-hmm. Say, most of these guys hate themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that is not ever really countered <laughs> by anything, any actions yeah. or statements that other people make. So, you know, I wonder... Uh, uh, well, he's definitely if saying it. Had isn't he? some run-ins with the police. Or I think something. so. I think so. I mean, uh, it, this is. It was written in 1919. Comes out in 21. Uh, pretty soon, we're in in uh, the you know Chicago crime era because of the prohibition. Prohibition. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Um, uh, uh, the word efficient. I, I have to deal with a lot because. Uh, I, I help students write essays, right? And efficient is a great vocab word. Unfortunately, it doesn't have a, almost any synonyms. And if you start, like, if you look at what they are, there's like organized, methodical, systematic, right? Orderly, productive. Productive is a good one, but it you can be highly productive and not be very efficient, right? You 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 can chop down a whole forest to make six toothpicks <laughs> in a minute but uh you know you could have weighed more toothpicks out of, out of those trees so no, there is no one word that you know is an exact or perfect synonym for efficient it's kind of a it's what i teach you know when you're writing um you you can use your words but you can't repeat them over and over again so you have to structure it so where do you want this this power word to to be and that sort of thing. When I'm teaching really young kids, one of the things I do to break the ice, you know, as it were, uh, at first, is I teach them how to play chess. And, uh, you know, this is, it's a fun game. Every I think there's a reason it's, it's very popular for so long, even though, you know, it's out of copyright. Nobody's promoting it. <laughs> it's not out of, uh, I guess, patent. Nobody's promoting it. It's still a very, very popular game. So what makes it so uh, popular? I don't, I don't know. But I can teach them how to play it. And I teach them a few moves. But the very first thing I teach them, I pull out my 
1979 Christmas present, which was a chess set that opens up and it's got backgammon on the inside. And there's a big pile or collection of all the pieces. And one of the things I show them is how I can be much faster doing the same job they can uh, than they can because I do it differently. So what I do is I, I uh, pull out all the pieces, right, and place them on the right. And then I flip the board over and I said, watch this. And I put all of the pieces that I've just put the right back on the board and then I put them on the board. This is after having them do it. And what they do is they take all the pieces from the right one at a time and move them over onto the board into their appropriate places. So by moving the whole pile twice, you're actually way faster than if you're moving the whole pile once in the first time and then individual pieces because your hand has to make many, many, many more distance motions. It's like basically buying your groceries at the grocery store one at a time and, uh, time and driving them home rather than filling up your cart and driving them home. You see mm-hmm. the difference? That kind well, this of, is that's exactly what Taylor did. That's this what exactly I'm saying. That's exactly what Frederick yeah. Taylor did. So, these time motion studies, they were called, where you would literally, yep. so, I think sometimes they even would have certain lights on people's hands so you could count um, um, motions that were done. And you get rid of inefficient motions within every kind of industrial task, even working with the machine. I heard an anecdote about him that he made the world's fastest typer type faster by eliminating <laughs> useless motion. I, um, wow. I recall... But this this makes work horrible. That's the problem with this is, yeah, it's efficient, but it makes life horrible for the working class. Sure. It makes work boring. uh, Flowers for Algernon, one of the first things that Charlie does with his increased intelligence is reorder the machines in the factory he works Mm. at to make it more efficient. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, it's not not, – scientific management might be horrible in the sense that a manager, just as you were saying, the brains, uh, the the manager's yeah. brains are under the cap of the worker or something like that, right? We don't look yeah. at a school and say uh, the principal is the smartest man in the school, right? <laughs> we say the whole purpose of the school – I mean I, I have problems with school, but I'm saying um, the whole purpose of the school is to educate the minds of the students. And the, the principal's job, although he, he's got the num- number in his name, Prince – Right, the first. Um, his job is actually to make sh- to solve the little daily shit that happens. Right, his n- job isn't to go in there and teach everybody anything or to reap the profits of the educated. Right, his job is as a manager is basically to make sure the garbage gets picked up and that the vomit uh, that didn't get cleaned up in the bathroom gets cleaned up by making sure that they have the janitor come in and do that when somebody complains, right? That's their, their job as a manager need not be, I mean, this is why I'm saying, why do you want to go into management kid? This sounds terrible. (laughs) It's like not a, I mean, that's what's so funny about the book is he ends up basically how he wanted. He thought he wanted at the beginning, which is, I think a mistake happily ever after being the manager of, Sears, right? That's not it's not the greatest <laughs> job ever. This is, you know, the guy who had such uh 
success in school. I, why, here's a question. Why didn't he become a professional baseball player, professional boxer? I mean, I understand why not being a boxer or a football player. He had all of those skills. Didn't, didn't, apparently they didn't. Yeah, you had professional baseball in it by the yeah. yeah, he's like the best amateur I, at all of them. So, the, yeah. Yeah, he could have, he could have. He could have gone into that. I think the reason he didn't is because of his class, right? Is he comes from wealth. He went to a Yale or a Harvard, probably a Yale, right? And he, it's just below his dignity. Co- yeah, college sports are fine, but anything you else be, is not. You want to hang out with Wade Boggs? That guy, he's, you know, or uh, it's the Yogi Berra, right? Those guys are not... Um, of his class. And I think that that was the real expectation is he can't do that. He can't be a professional uh, sports. I mean, this is, uh, this is why for so long, you know, the, the Olympics, which we, uh, I guess a lot of people pay attention to, right. They have this amateur aspect. You have to be an amateur of whatever you are rather than a professional. And the reason was it was a class thing. Right, you're uh, equestrian. <laughs> Notice yeah. there's no jockeys. You know the guys who are at the at the racetrack running those jo- uh, in the Olympics, right? Because that's not what who it's for. It's for the elites. Well, now I'm thinking. Yeah, of last I, think, I think you might be right about that. I, I'm thinking of my understanding. I don't really know the history of baseball as well as I should, as a as a baseball fan and a historian. It's a pastime. That's, that's on me. But it, by this point, you had professional baseball, but I think a lot of players worked other jobs during the off-season because they weren't paid that much. They're not mm-hmm. like set pigment today, right? And they're not like how baseball players are paid today. And even now, like minor leaguers are paid nothing. Yeah. Like even if no, you have league minimum, yeah, it's like you know, you have to have another job. Which is, which is a lot of money for me, but compared to... The big contracts is not, but in those days you didn't make that much even in the professional in in major leagues. So that was why you had spring training, because spring training was getting these people back into shape after whatever they were doing all summer, working at a factory. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think we did a pretty efficient job with this book. What do you think? <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Trish. Absolutely. Uh, it was a fun. very efficient podcast. <laughs> I'm amazed that I can put out two podcasts a week and that they're not wholly incompetent. That it, it, it strikes me like, geez, could I do three? I'm pretty sure I couldn't do three. <laughs> no, <laughs> pretty yeah, sure. Yeah. Self care, Jesse. Self care. Yeah, I mean, I I spend I, I was just looking at my uh, PUBG hours, you know, Player Unknown Battlegrounds hours, um, and I I have 2,010 hours in it said. 2,010 hours playing one computer game. That is a hell of a lot of time. Um, that's my self-care, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Killing, killing people in PUBG. Got it. Well, defending myself, you know. Defending yourself. That would take all of it. No, no, really. I mean, it, it's a. It, it's going to be a great... If they ever do a movie, it, it should be really terrific. Because the premise is so good. You're dropped on an island... Uh, 99 other people are trying to kill you and there, the, there's a wall that's coming that if you get in behind it, 
it kills you. So you, you're all squeezed into a smaller and smaller area. And yeah, I don't play it to kill people. I do kill people, but it's not, it's, I just want to, it's a survival game, right? And that everybody's a predator. Everybody's trying to kill you. And yeah, you will have to kill somebody maybe at the end, but you don't technically have to. They could die from the wall or they could kill themselves accidentally, right? So it is, it's, it's a, it's a great, some, I don't know how you can explain the backstory, some dystopian, uh, I don't know, TV show where, but, you know, it's basically the running man plot. People dropped uh, into this zone and have to kill each other, battle royale, whatever you want to call it. It's a, it's a great premise and it'll be a, it will be a fun movie, I think, because it, that's, that's what has made that there's a really, uh, fun, I don't know if you guys have seen this, this website, uh, YouTube channel. Um, it basically shows the popularity of various things over time. Um, like for example, most popular computer game or most popular operating system or most popular type of phone. And it shows over time, you know, how companies and operating systems and games and movies, franchises, um, rise and fall. And you can see like, oh, this is the most popular uh, operating system for the longest time. And then something comes in, like Macintosh comes in, suddenly, right, boom, everything changes. Um, and when they do it with computer games, y- you-, you can see like trends that you're sort of out of touch with, like League of Legends it just kills everything and every once in a while something will come in and and it'll it'll pop up into first place and then a couple couple months later it's back down uh and league of legends is back up nothing can kill league of legends right now right <laughs> and and seeing over time the rise and fall of things you can see like your own participation in various products media ideas and that sort of thing and and it's it's just like here's an idea whose time has come here's a here's a a book or uh usually it's not books it's usually movies or computer games or uh o- operating systems phone companies right and when apple introduces you know a new phone it goes up and then androids is doing a steady steady rise you know huawei's are becoming more and more popular I, I it's it's uh I think it's data is beautiful is what it's called. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.